Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's me, Melissa Canchola. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. And now I got for you, this is Revelation, The Last and Final Call by Dr. Vodi Vapun here on Truth Be Told Radio. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the last chapter of the last book, chapter 22 of Revelation. And we will look today, I know it says 13 to 16, we'll look at 12 to 16, and you'll understand why momentarily. If you look here at verses 12 through 16, as we look at this text, if you, if you have a, a, a red-letter edition of the Bible, you will find that we begin and end with red letters begin and end with the Lord, Lord's words. And if you look in the middle of there, um, verses 14 and 15, look like they are framed by the red letters, and they actually are. Uh, this is kind of a mini chiasm or a mini frame. We've talked about these, these frames before. And this is one of those frames where on the outside of the frame you have the same thing. There is the announcement and identity of the Christ. So that would be the outside frame. You see that in verses 12 and 13, and also there in verse 16. It's the same thing. There is an announcement and an identification of Christ. In the middle of it, you have the identification of the blessing of the saints and the curse of sinners. And so this package altogether is a picture of Christ, who is the judge, and the effect of the judgment that he brings. The effect of the judgment that he brings is twofold. One, it is a blessing for the righteous. And two, it is a curse or condemnation for the unrighteous. And all of it is tied up in this idea of Christ and who he is. In both cases, this identification is crucial. That's why it comes at the beginning and the end of this picture. The identity of the two groups is contingent upon their relationship to Christ. That's what makes them who they are. That's what makes them what they are. It's their relationship to Christ. There's a reference here to their deeds. However, their deeds are a direct result of their relationship or lack thereof with Christ or the nature of their relationship with Christ because everyone has a relationship with Christ. Amen? You people talk about that all the time, you know. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with Christ? You don't ever have to ask anyone that question. The answer to that question is always yes. Amen. We all have a relationship to Christ. For some, he is our deliverer. For the others, he is our judge. In both cases, it's a relationship, and in both both cases, it's personal. Amen. Secondly, the authority of Christ to reward or judge is contingent upon his identity. 
So again, in both instances, his identity is central. First of all, his identity is central because that's how we identify who these people are and to which group they belong, their relationship with him. And secondly, his ability to judge and his authority to judge is tied up. It is linked inexorably to who he is. So both of those things are important as we look at this passage of the Scripture. Beginning in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Amen. This is a powerful yet brief statement. In this statement, first and foremost, we see a picture of who Christ is. He identifies himself clearly at both the beginning and the end of the statement. Let's look at his identity in the first part of the statement as the judge comes. It's almost a picture of a judge. Here's the way I view this, 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 this passage of Scripture. Here comes the judge. The judge walks in, and it's all right. The Honorable Jesus Christ presiding, and, and, and he comes to his bench, and he's identified as he comes to the bench. And then judgment is passed. And then after judgment is passed, it's all rise again as the judge parts. As he enters, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Christ is the judge of the world. His judgment, number one, is imminent. He says, behold, I am coming soon. His judgment is imminent. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but it's almost ironic to say that in light of the fact that we're looking back some 2,000 years, and it's been said for all that time that his judgment is imminent, and his judgment is imminent. And as has already been noted, when we think about Christ's imminent judgment, we do not think of it in terms of our own understanding. We don't think of it in terms of the way we count time. Again, we've said on a number of occasions, Peter's statement about with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day, is quite appropriate here. God is not bound by time. So when we say that it is imminent, what we mean is it could be at any time. It was true then, and it's true now. And should the Lord tarry for another thousand years, it will still be true that the Lord could come at any time. But you and I do not know when that time is, which has again been stated here earlier in another chapter, that picture of him coming as a thief. But his coming is imminent. But there's another sense in which we understand the eminence of Christ's return in this regard, because as the judge, um, all of us 
could die at any moment. And in that moment, we will face him as our redeemer or as our judge. So while this is talking about the broader reality at the end of the age, there is also a sense in which for every one of us, this is but a heartbeat away. This judgment is imminent. And that's part of the idea here. Part of the idea of this particular set of statements is that we would examine ourselves. We're coming to the close of the letter. And it's time for us to recognize that this is not just an academic exercise. But this has been communicated for a reason. And the reason is that the judgment is imminent, both in terms of Christ, who could come at any moment, and also in terms of you, who could meet God at any moment. It's only a heartbeat away. Secondly, his judgment is warranted. He says, I'm bringing my recompense. The Greek word that is used here is recompense is sometimes translated as wages. Other times it's translated as uh, payment. I'm bringing my recompense. Sometimes it's translated as reward. He says, I'm coming and I'm bringing my recompense with me. We've already seen that individuals are going to be judged according to what they do according to what they have done, according to their deeds. It's more than that, though. It's not only our deeds. Because, again, in order for a deed to be righteous, it has to be the right thing done the right way for the right reason. If you do the right thing but you don't do it the right way, you don't do it for the right reason, it's not right. It's like the man who was in the midst of a war. And in the midst of that war, he jumped on a grenade. He'd seen it happen before. The individual who did it was heralded as a hero because he saved his unit. So lo and behold, the opportunity comes and the man jumps and he falls on the grenade and he dies. He opens his eyes in hell, much to his dismay, and he can't believe it. I just jumped on a grenade, and I just saved my men, and here I am in hell. What gives? Shouldn't I be in the other place? I mean, that was a heroic deed that saved the lives of others. Yes, it was a heroic deed that saved the lives of others, and you did it because you thought that doing it would make you a hero. In other words, you did it for yourself more than for anyone else. You did it because you thought it would make God indebted to you and that somehow God would owe you entrance into his kingdom because of your deed, which, again, is completely and utterly selfish if it's not the right thing done the right way for the right reason. And by the way, the only right reason is the glory and honor of God, then it is sinful. Another way to say this, that which is not of faith is sin. So when we say that there is a reward for deeds, understand that we're not talking here in terms of a scorecard where certain deeds are worth certain points, and the points are added up at the end. Because the fact of the matter is, apart from Christ, you have no score. His 
judgment is also individual. Notice he says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. It's individual. Everyone's judgment is individual. We will stand before God and be judged individually. This is important for us to un- for understand. This is important for us to grasp. As parents, it's important for us to understand that we can't be righteous for our children. Amen? As children, it's important for us to understand our, our parents can't be righteous for us. But it's also important for us to understand that the other way. Our children can't be unrighteous for us. Our parents can't be unrighteous for us. There is not a sense in which God will judge us for what others have done. We will be judged based upon our own actions and thoughts and attitudes and words and deeds. This judgment is individual. You have to answer to Jesus. You have to stand before his throne. You individually. And when you stand before God, it will not be like judgment in our understanding. Because judgment in our understanding goes something like this. Did, did you hit the lady in her head and take her purse? Well, see, actually, you know, what happened was, was you know, I, I, I'm poor. Didn't ask you if you were poor. I asked you if you hit the lady in her head and took her purse. Well, you know, actually, I grew up without a father. Okay, fine. But that's not what I asked you. I asked you if you hit the lady in the head and took her purse. Well, you know, actually, I have a drug problem. Fine. Didn't ask you about your drug problem. I asked you if you did what you did. See, the way we think about Justice is so incredibly clouded. We blame our environment. We blame our upbringing. We blame our circumstances. Listen, when you stand before God, the question will not be, did you have the right parents? Did you have the right upbringing? Did you have the right environment? That's not the question. When you sin, it's because you are a sinner. That's why you sin. And the fact of the matter is the reason that the environment, the reason that the world works on you and affects you is because of your own sinful desires. You ever notice how even when we're blaming our environment for our sin, the environment can only make us go so far? I mean, you ask a person who says, well, you know, I did this because of the way that I was raised. And you look at that same person and say, well, well, how come you never did whatever? You think about something else horrible. And they say, oh, no, I would never do that. Well, well why? Because if, if the environment is the problem, then you should be willing to do anything, right? But there's certain things that you won't do. You see, the reason that your environment was allowed to influence you in the way that it did is because of the desires that you already had. Take two men and put a glass of scotch in front of them. One who's never had a drink before doesn't have a proclivity toward alcohol, doesn't have those physical desires in him, will look at it and keep on walking. Another man whose body has tasted and enjoyed and gotten used to tasting and enjoying will all of a sudden begin to have huge problems as he stands and looks at the exact same glass. What's the difference? The difference is the desires on the inside of us. See, there's a reason that we give in to our environment, and that is because of who we are as sinners. 
So it's not as though we are morally neutral and the environment comes in and turns us into sinners. The fact of the matter is we are sinful, and the environment merely gives us opportunities to express our sinfulness. The things that we like and crave, we run after them. The things that we don't, we don't think about. But we don't avoid those things. The man who can walk by that glass of scotch, he doesn't walk by it because he's good. He just has another proclivity. And if you found what that thing was, he'd start having the same kinds of problems. It's not your environment. It's not your upbringing. It is your sinfulness. It is your nature. And this is essential as we understand the gospel. Because if I believe that my problem is my environment, I don't need a savior. I just need a new address. If I believe that my problem is the world, I don't need a savior. I just maybe need to get my TV out of my house. My problem is my environment. I may just need to get away from some of my friends. I don't need to be born again. Because there's nothing wrong with me. The problem is out there. Do you see how that perverts our understanding of the gospel? Again, I'm not saying that there's not a problem out there. There is a problem out there. But the reason that the problem out there is a problem in here is because there's also a problem in here that likes what the problem out there is bringing to it. According to what he has done, this judgment is individual. You will stand before God and answer for your words, for your thoughts, and for your deeds. You will. And it will not be children playing in the courtyard kind of answers that will suffice. Yeah, but he hit me first. But what did you do? We also see here that Christ is the judge because he's God. There's a phrase used here three times in this passage that we've looked at, and that that phrase is, I am. That's an important phrase. He says, behold, I am coming soon. And then he says again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, beginning and the end. I am, I am, I am. And then in that last verse, we have another I am. We have an I, Jesus, and then we have an I am, the root and the descendants of David. This I am phrase is important. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, when Moses is standing there being confronted by God, and he says, whom shall I say has sent me? Basically, what is your name? God says to Moses in verse 14 of chapter 3, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. John chapter 8, verses 56 to 59, same author as the author of Revelation, is the one who records this. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. 
He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. Why did they pick up stones? Because he identified himself as the I am, as God. Don't you ever let anybody tell you Jesus never identified himself as God. He also says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Turn with me to the left and look at the beginning of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And verse 8. This is the first time we see this phrase. Notice what it says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So now Jesus says, first of all, I am, and in case you think, well, that's not enough, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The same phrase was used to reference God in chapter 1. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. They're in that same paragraph in chapter 1, there is the identity of all of the persons of the Trinity, the identity of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. And we've seen that reiterated throughout Revelation. Not only have we seen that, but we've seen the unholy Trinity, which is actually the opposite of the true holy Trinity. So we see that God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. One God in three persons. One in their unity and communion and essence and nature, but distinct in their person. So Christ can judge because he's God, only one who can judge because he is God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is God. And this is crucial. First of all, because he's God, he is able to reward the righteous. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now, this is the seventh, again, numbers in the book of Revelation, so incredibly important. We've seen seven iterations of this picture of history and history being brought to its consummation. And we see these things repeating. We've talked about recapitulation again and again and again. These seven vignettes. There are also seven blessings or seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This is the seventh one. The first one is Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The second one is in chapter 14, verse 3. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. There's blessing and deeds again. 16.15 is the third beatitude. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, 
that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. There's blessing in garments again. The fourth one, Revelation 19:9, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Number five, chapter 20 and verse six. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The sixth one, chapter 22, verse seven. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And now the, fine, the final, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. The righteousness here is an alien righteousness. It's interesting. He says that he's come with his recompense and he's going to reward everyone according to their deeds, according to what they've done. What have these people done? They washed their robes. There's one other time when we see this reference, and that's in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14, talking about those who survive this great tribulation. I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb, in the blood of the lamb. What makes their robes white? The blood of the lamb. This is not works righteousness. This is righteousness as a a result of Christ's work. This is not righteousness that is earned. This is righteousness that is imputed. This is not righteousness that is our own. This is righteousness that is alien. It is an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that is ours because of the blood of Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That is how you wash your robes white. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more, but the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is only the blood of Christ that washes us clean. This is his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross on our behalf. Make no mistake about it. Those who stand before him and are blessed and are righteous and have on white robes, are not there because they're better than other people or because their environments were more pure than other people or because their parents did a better job than other people. It will be because they have come to Christ in repentance and faith because they have believed in his finished work, because they have cried out to him for mercy, and having cried out, they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's who's blessed. Those who trust in Christ and Christ alone. Their righteousness is evident. Righteousness is evident in their deeds. It has an impact. We see this in Revelation 19, 7 and 8. I believe this is related. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, 
and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this washing, this righteousness is an alien righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness. But it is also an active righteousness. It is a righteousness that makes us positionally righteous. We are right with God positionally, but it also makes us actually righteous. We actually walk in righteousness. We actually walk in holiness. Upright and circumspect before the Lord. Why? Because the spirit that raised Christ from the dead abides in us. We are made new. We are made whole. We are made clean. Our very inclinations are changed. Our desires are changed because of the finished work of Christ and his imputed righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are righteous. And that righteousness will manifest itself. And we will grow in that righteousness. We will despise sin increasingly as we grow in that righteousness. We will be aware of it increasingly as we grow in that righteousness. It is so ironic because oftentimes what happens with believers is we'll go through, we'll go through this, this, these kind of phases. And you have believers, and, and we're introduced you know, to Christ and his righteousness, and we're transformed, and we look, and we see the, the, the sins, and they're easy to spot. Because it's the big stuff. It's all the big stuff, you know? And the world is just black and white. And then we get to a place where, you know, we've taken care of the big stuff and we're okay for a while. And then there's another place that believers come to. And that's the place where you recognize that even though you're not doing the big stuff, you're still struggling with the same things. They're just not manifesting themselves like they used to. And all of a sudden, you're thinking about the minutia of sin and sometimes that can bring you to a point of crisis because you can think you know after all this time i'm still a rotten ruined dirty scoundrel just like i was maybe i'm not even saved at all you know what's so ironic about that in the believer the only reason that matters is because you're saved my favorite thing to say to believers when they come to me, and they say, I'm just struggling. What are you struggling with? I'm just struggling with assurance of my salvation. I'm struggling with believing that I'm saved because I see this sin in myself, and I hate this sin in myself, and I'm warring against it. I'm not gaining victory. And I say, oh, stop right there. I've heard enough. What do you mean? I haven't even begun to tell you. You don't have to. I've heard enough. I've heard you're struggling and you're at war. You're on the right side. Now, we can talk about mortifying your sin, but we're not talking about your salvation anymore. Because who do you think makes you hate the sin in you? Do you think you can be lost and hate the sin in you? you think you can be lost and struggling with the sin in you? you think you can be lost and at war with the sin in you? Now, granted, we need to fight, but you need to understand the side you're on as you fight. Thank God for that. Thank God that you hate your sin. Thank God that you see it even in the smallest ways. Thank God that it bothers you still. 
Thank God that you don't want it to be a part of you. Thank God that you recognize that it ought not be so. Thank God that you don't want it to be so. Thank God for that. That's the grace of God in your life. So, yes, we're actually righteous, but that righteousness increases in us, which means we're still sinners. We're saved. We're saints. We're saints. We're saints who remember some stuff. Some of it too fondly. Amen? We're saints. And that righteousness is rewarded. There's two things here. I love these. First, there's the tree of life. The first Adam was excluded from this tree. The last Adam brings us back to it. Hallelujah. (laughs) The tree of life. God's bringing this thing full circle. And there we have access to the tree of life. And secondly, the city. So first, our union with the first Adam has been transformed. We're no longer under his federal headship. We're now under the federal headship of the last Adam. And then the city, there's a picture of the city, the bride of Christ, our union with the last Adam is finally realized and consummated. This is the reward. The reward is eternal life in perfect union with Christ. That's the reward. Eternal life in perfect union with Christ. This goes back to the other issue of our constant struggle with sin as believers. You know, one of the other reasons that we get so upset about that, because we have, you heard this word, you heard this word before, I'm going to say it again, an over-realized eschatology. We want things that belong to the age to come, but we want to experience them in the present age. So in the age to come, I will be perfect. In the age to come, my communion with Christ will be unbroken. In the age to come, there will be no more sin in me, but that's the age to come. But when I look at myself in the here and now, and I don't see what's been promised to me in the age to come, and I get upset with myself or upset with God, I have an over-realized eschatology. It's like the kid who's upset because he knows what he's going to get on his birthday, but his birthday hasn't come yet. And so he's depressed. What's the matter? I didn't get my gift today. It's not your birthday. I know, but I just want my gift. You're like eight months away from your birthday. I know, but I just I just want it. I just really want it. And I'm just I woke up today and I didn't have it and I'm just I just don't even know if you even love me because I woke up today and I don't have my gift that you said you were gonna get me. And see we hear that. And we chuckle. But that's you and me with our overrealized eschatology. <laughs> no, but you said that this sin was going to be taken away from me and that I wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, that's when you die. You're not dead yet. I know, but still. Then there's the punishment of the unrighteous. Notice this. 
there's been all these statements about Christ returning and crushing his enemies. Vivid picture in 19 of this warrior who comes and dispatches his foes. Notice how understated this is. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There is one word that describes their judgment here. Everything else describes them. One word describes their judgment outside. That's it. That's all. Outside. What's our reward? Tree of life, eternal life, city, perfect communion and union with Christ. Where are they? Outside. Where there is no tree and there is no communion. Justice is served. We don't see a picture here of justice being served. We've already seen the picture of justice being served. But now we see a picture of the result of that justice having been served. Christ is vindicated. These, these individuals are outside the gates. The wicked get what they have desired and deserved. Let me say that again. The wicked get what they desire and deserve. It's always ironic to me when we talk about people who never wanted to be with Christ or never wanted to be with Christians, never wanted to be with the church, and they die, and we say that they've gone to a better place to be with the God that they didn't want to be with here. How does that work? These individuals never wanted God. They never wanted Christ. They wanted themselves and their own desires. That's what they were characterized by. They didn't want to be with God, and now they get what they desired and what they deserve. It's a familiar list. In 21 chapter 8, we have an almost identical list. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, uh, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We have the introduction of the idea of dogs. That which is detestable. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a symbolic list. On this edition of the dogs, listen to this from Alan Johnson. Such are the dogs, i.e. those who practice magic arts, etc. Vis-a-vis those who rebel against the rule of God. Deuteronomy 23.18, where the dog signifies male prostitutes. Matthew 11 or 15.26, where dogs refer to Gentiles. Philippians 3, 2-3, where dogs refers to the Judaizers. There is no doubt that such people will not be admitted through the gates of the holy city. Dogs is just kind of an all-encompassing term here. The sexually immoral, kind of an all-encompassing term here. Murderers and idolaters, again, murderers has to do with the horizontal commandments, Idolaters have to do with the vertical commandments and those who love and practice falsehood. It's everybody, everybody who's false, everybody who's idolatrous, everybody who's hate-filled, all of them. And the kind of capstone of all of that is dogs. It's just horrendous language. 
There is no boasting or gloating here. It is just a simple, understated fact that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. The unrighteous will not be with Christ. The unrighteous will not taste of the tree of life. The unrighteous will not be part of that city, the bride of Christ. The unrighteous are simply outside. What happens to Lake Fire? There's still Lake Fire. All of that's still true. But again, this is just a restatement. And in this restatement, the point that's being made here is not so much a point about the punishment that is being endured by the unrighteous, but the statement here is about the distance and distinction between those who are his and are with him and those who are outside. And finally, all rise. The verdict has been rendered. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. There is a reiteration here of the deity of Christ. First, I, Jesus, sent my angel. Um, This early on is attributed to the Father who sent his angel with this message. So again, Christ is being identified with the Father. But there are a couple of things being said here. Number one, you've been warned. You've been warned. The immediate warning of Revelation itself, I sent my angel. We see that in the first part. But there's also the broader warning of the law and the prophets. He says, I'm the root and the descendant of David. In other words, you've been warned. I I warn you here in this particular book, but you've also been warned by the rest of the Bible. He is the one who has been promised. He is the root and the descendant of David. He is the promised Messiah. So it's not like this is new. You've been warned again and again and again, and this is your last warning. Kind of like being at the airport. Last and final call. I counted one time. And they said that six times. Sometimes, sometimes it gets crucial. Sometimes it's the last and final call in general for the flight. Sometimes it's Davis party of two. Last and final call. In case you were wondering. We're waiting for you, Davis, party of two. This is your last and final call. And they say it again and again and again and again and again. And when they do that, here's what happens. We sit there and we go, really? It's not really the last and final call because you said it six times. Come on, people. Just say last and final call and then close the door and leave unless you're Davis, party of two. Then you run, huffing and puffing, and out of breath. And they've given you the last and final call six times, and you give them your ticket, and you smile at them, and you thank them, and you get on the plane, and the door closes, and you take a deep breath. 
then you're not annoyed that they said it six times or 16 times. You're just grateful for the time when you heard it. And you're just grateful that you were there to hear it. And that's ultimately the message here. We need to respond to this last and final call. And you can look at it and say, yeah, but this last and final call has been out there for so long. That's the wrong way to look at this for the unbeliever. You need to believe that Jesus is God, that he's the second person of the Trinity. Last and final call. You need to believe in the sinfulness of sin and in the sinfulness of your sin. Last and final call. You need to believe in the atonement of Christ and that the atonement of Christ is the only payment for sin that is acceptable and that it's your only hope and that only through Christ dying for your sin and you receiving that by faith and turning from your sin can you be made right with God and make it Last and final call. You believe in the judgment to come and that that judgment is imminent and that you stand right in the crosshairs. Last and final call. To the believer, we need to examine ourselves. When you hear the last and final call, are you annoyed? Or are you anxious that Davis Party of Two will get on board? (laughs) If you're annoyed, you're arrogant and prideful and selfish. Because you don't care about Christ having the fullness of his reward. All you care about is you having a seat. Shame on you. Shame on you if you're annoyed when you hear the call of the gospel. Shame on you if you're tired of hearing the call of the gospel. When you hear the call of the gospel and you hear last and final call again and again and again, you don't get annoyed if you know what it's like. If you remember what it's like. You rejoice. You rejoice in the fact that you heard the last and final call. And you rejoice in the fact that Christ is still making that last and final call. And that with everyone who hears and everyone who responds and everyone who heeds, Christ is glorified all the more, and we get that much closer to the final consummation of all things. Last and final call. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you as a humble people and a grateful people. 
grateful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For those of us who are his, our gratitude is overwhelming. We also bow before you as a humble people and as desperately wicked and needy people. For those under the sound of my voice who have not heeded that final call, my prayer for you is that you would be merciful and that in your mercy they would be saved. Lord, we bow before you as a grateful body of believers who rejoice in the great privilege of commemorating week after week after week the mercy that has been bestowed upon us through the person and work of Christ. And we bow before you as an anxious body of believers, desperate to see the gospel proclaimed and sinners saved. Father, I pray that for all of us, we would embrace this truth from whatever side of the gate we find ourselves, that those who are on the outside would repent and run to Christ and come in, and that those who are on the inside would rejoice, walk in righteousness, and proclaim the truth like one beggar telling other beggars where we found bread. Grant by your grace that this would mark us. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. When Mary became pregnant, Joseph thought she had been unfaithful and he resolved to divorce her quietly. But an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Of course, Mary was a virgin when she became pregnant with Jesus, but Matthew implies that Joseph and Mary did eventually consummate their marriage. You've surely heard of the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary never had other children after Jesus, nor did Joseph ever know his wife, for she remained a virgin for the rest of her life. This is popular among Roman Catholics, but also Greek Orthodox and even some Protestants. John Wesley believed this doctrine. However, the Bible is really clear that Jesus had other siblings. When Jesus taught in his hometown of Nazareth, the people said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, are not all his sisters with us? So where did he get all these things? The whole family is mentioned by the people who knew them, Joseph and Mary and Jesus and his half-siblings. It is understood that the books of James and Jude were written by Jesus' half-brothers who became believers. The doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is also born out of bad doctrine on sexuality. Never ever believe that marital relations and the fruitfulness of the womb make a woman any less pure. 
Mary is honored as a godly woman, and the fact that she loved her husband and had other children did not make her any less a godly woman when we understand the text. God's eternal plan. This is Ken Ham, inviting you to walk through the Bible's history at the Creation Museum. Well, Christmas is over, but God's eternal plan isn't. At the Creation Museum, we summarize the foundational history of the Bible as the seven seas of history. And we're going to look at those seas the rest of this week. Now, the first sea is creation. God created everything in just six days a few thousand years ago. This original creation was very good. It was perfect. There was no death or suffering, no pain or sorrow. And the first two people God made, Adam and Eve, had a perfect, unbroken relationship with him and with each other. But the next C, corruption, explains why our world isn't like that anymore. That's for tomorrow. There's so much more to learn when you visit the Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. Kids visit for free. So bring the whole family. Go to AnswersRadio.com. You're very anti-Catholic. You're anti-me. It's based on ignorance. That is actually a lie. I've seen your videos. They're not honest. Where have I lied on my videos? You think I hate Catholics? Yeah. Galileo. He's put in prison by the Catholic no, Church. That's a false story. Ray Comfort gets owned by Catholics. This gentleman's name is Don. He showed up at Huntington Beach here in California for the sole purpose of straightening me out when it came to my understanding of the Catholic Church. As he walked by me, he said, you are anti-Catholic, and that certainly got my attention. He kindly agreed to come on camera, and this is how our conversation began. Have I ever looked at a woman in lust? Have I ever lied? Have I ever cheated? All these stuff. And you say, ah, you just said you're this. No, that doesn't define me. So what defines you? Morality is it's, it's a definition of how you carry yourself, your ethics, what you believe in, your faith. Now, how did you start this conversation before we turned the camera on? <laughs> I think that's relevant. Well, I, I've seen your videos. And you're very anti-Catholic. So what do you have to do to enter heaven as a Catholic? Same thing you guys believe you do. You have to recognize Jesus Christ is your own personal Savior. No one goes through heaven but through me. Yeah, so why are you so upset and saying I hate Catholics? That's all I tell them. Why wouldn't anybody? If, if, if you're anti-Catholic, you're anti-me, right? No, I'm not. Yeah. I love you very much. Well, I care about you. That's what you say. Yeah, what else can I do? I've seen your videos. They're not honest. Where have I lied on my videos? Okay, you made a statement to someone... When you think about Christianity, what do people think? And they say, well, it's the Crusades, it's the Inquisition, it's all these things that Christians done. You go, no, 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 no. That's the Catholic faith. Don't you know anything about that? You mean the Catholic Inquisition? The Inquisition. I studied it. No, you didn't. Okay, where did he get it wrong? Well, there's no Inquisition. No, that's not what I'm saying. There was. Just visualize these monks from Monty Python, you know, one of those Monty Python videos. I've not seen those. Oh, you should. They're kind of funny, though. Blasphemous. Why? They're blasphemous. Who cares if it's blasphemous, right? I do. Church, right? No, I care if it's blasphemous. I blaspheme in the name of Jesus. I don't want to watch it. Okay. So where are you going when you die? I'm going to heaven. Why? I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure? I'm pretty sure. I don't want to say you're pretty sure. You want to know. That's the teaching of the Bible. I know I'm going to heaven. You know you're going to heaven. Yeah. So I just came back from confession earlier today, which I know you don't believe in, but, you know. I believe in confession, but directly to God, like the scriptures teach, like David confessed directly to God when he yeah, said. Yeah, but 
Jesus also told disciples, you know, God sent me, so I sent you. You have the power to retain the sins. We both have the power to do that. We can forgive people or not yeah, forgive people. Sure. Actually, the church believes that too. So let me give my testimony and see what you think. Tell me where I'm wrong. The reason I came to Christ is because I knew I'd sinned against God. I felt I was going to heaven until I read the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And I thought, man, if God's going to judge me by that standard on Judgment Day, I'm going to hell because I was burning with unlawful sexual desire like every red-blooded guy. And that's when I understood the cross. That we broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine, rose from the dead, defeated death. And all we have to do to find everlasting life is repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus. That's what I tell Catholics who have never been born again. Who do you think? Catholics don't know that. I say, if you've been born again, they say no. I think, well, this is an unsaved person. I'm going to share the gospel with them. And that's what I get railed for by Catholics, by sharing the gospel. A lot of people, you know, when you approach them with a microphone, they think on the spot. They have to think on the spot. So they don't always say the right things, right? When it talks about lust, I mean, there has to be a context there, I think, because lust, isn't that like a mechanism for reproduction? No. Lust is unlawful sexual desire in God's eyes. What is unlawful? Violating God's law. You know the difference. When you look at pornography, that's lust. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We have a conscience, and conscience knows the difference. Some people say, oh, Jesus was talking about married women because he said you commit adultery in your heart when you look with lust. But that's crazy because that means every woman you want to lust after, you've got to go up to her and say, excuse me, are you married or not? Does that mean you can look at Paul with a single woman, not married woman? No, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, commit adultery with her in your heart. And every time we sin, we store up God's wrath. That's what the Bible teaches, Romans chapter 2. So we need to repent, put our trust in Jesus, and have our sins washed away. And evidence of that is that we'll love righteousness. And we'll have a knowledge of everlasting life because we've been born again. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think I hate Catholics? Yeah, I, I, th- I still think you do. Because it's based on ignorance. It's because there's a lot of anti, there's a lot of churches that have been burned. Because there's a lot of anti-Catholics going on. Same with Jews, same with Christians all over the world. So it's just a hatred for the things of God. So you may not realize this, but Don, I really love you. I care about you. Oh, and, 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 I, and I hope you'll think about what we talked about. And can I give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the yeah, Bible? Why not? Yeah. Let me show it to you. Just take a hold of it for a second. Won't hurt you. It's written in a New Zealand accent. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. A lot of people think that the Catholic Church was anti-science, but actually a lot of scientific principles that were that are used today was discovered by Catholic priests, such as early mathematics, psychiatry, Galileo, he was put in prison by the Catholic no, Church. That's a false story. Pope John Paul II rectified a wrong that forced the Italian astronomer and physicist to live the last years of his life in exile, and worse yet, to recant his proven discoveries to save his hide. So Pope John Paul II concluded he had been imprudently opposed. The leader of the investigation conducted in 1992, Cardinal Paul Poppard, said, We today know that Galileo was right in adopting the Copernican astronomical theory. A statement put him at risk of being arrested and possibly executed by his own church just a few hundred years previously. That is a false story. I've seen Catholics apologizing for it, for what actually happened. I know. There's, you know, we got stupidity in every phase. So it did happen. Okay, Galileo was a teacher at Catholic universities. And he started teaching heliocentrism, what scientists believed at the time was uh, the Earth was the center. 
of the universe. But he was teaching that the sun was the center of the universe, which he was right, of course. I think it touches on, on Galileo, so you'll enjoy it. But he wasn't put in prison, though. His house arrest. But what he believed, he wasn't tried for heresy. And he was basically saying, you guys, I'll teach what I want. And they got tired of it. So they had a hearing for him, an inquisition. Okay? They didn't torture him. They didn't do to him what they did to William Tyndale. I don't know who he is. He, he translated the Bible into English and was burned at the stake by the Catholic Church for doing that. That's probably... Ninety percent of the population during that time was ignorant. They didn't know how to read. So what did they have to fear? That's why it was translated into English for the common people. And that's how people came to Christ, because they read in the Bible that salvation is a free gift of God. It's not earned by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man boast. If you're saved you'll have evidence of your salvation. If you've got a fruit tree, it'll bear fruit, fruit of righteousness that manifests once you're born again. And that's all I'm saying. Eternal life is a free gift of God. That's good news for atheists, for agnostics, for Catholics, for non-Catholics. There's this guy who's been, he has a YouTube channel, and he wants to debate you. Oh, so terribly. Trent? Oh, him. Have you ever considered that? No, I'd never consider it. No, this is somebody else. Contacted your parish. I don't have a parish. Or whatever you call it, I don't know, your church headquarters or whatever. I don't whatever. have a church headquarters. I don't even have a church. I go to a church. Well, you're just like uh, an just independent like, agent, I'm just, huh? I'm just like you, Don. Okay. An ordinary person. Ray Comfort gets owned by Catholic. That's the only way I can think of it, so relax. <laughs> yeah, here he is. He actually went over some of your videos here of you confronting people who are Catholic and oh, sharing the gospel with people who are Catholic, not confronting them. Okay. Okay, sure. That's him right there. Friends over at Living Waters, Ray Comfort and Gang are at it again, spreading lies about Catholicism. He's been saying, I've been trying to reach out to Ray Comfort, and, you know, I can't get a hold of him. It's not going to happen. No, why not? Because it's like someone wanted to debate, wanting to debate that the sun's made of ice. I really haven't got time for that. I'd rather share the gospel with Catholics and non-Catholics because I care about them. He could tell you how it really is. I've watched his YouTube channel. I know what he says. Oh, do you? Oh, yes. I'm very familiar with him. We just did a video answering his accusations. Yeah. Great comfort sounds Catholic. He goes around not teaching people faith alone. He goes around teaching people that if you break the commandments, you're going to be lost. And we agree. We have to follow the commandments even after you're saved. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Everyone says it. That is just not true. I have never said that. And neither does the Bible. It says the opposite. The Ten Commandments can't save us. They weren't given for that purpose. We're saved by grace and grace alone, without works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works anyone should boast. The Christian does good works not to obtain salvation, but as evidence of salvation. Not bribery, but gratitude. Understanding this is the difference between life and death. Okay, I'll, I'll check it out. Salvation is for everybody, right? It, it, it transcends borders. Well, the offer is universal. 
And it's only those who are born again will enter God's kingdom according to Jesus. And so when I meet a Catholic who's not born again, I share the gospel with him because I love him and care about him and hope he thinks about it. And, you know, they're very grateful. No one's railed on me. They've said, thanks for talking to me. And I don't know. I've seen some videos. I, I've seen some people come down really hard on you, right? I have a good relationship with God, and I do believe that God does, does forgive us for our sins. And because I am Catholic, I do believe in confessing my sins and being forgiven. Have you been born again? I was born September 11th, 1971, and I was baptized and Catholic, and I have been Catholic my entire life. You have told lies, whether you have had sex outside of marriage, whether you are homosexual, it does not matter. God loves his children. Period. You're blowing out of your... Yeah, it's a little bit land. Plain and simple. Give me a courtesy of one minute, please. A whole minute? Yes. Cannot earn eternal life. The redemption of your soul is precious. No man can by any means redeem his brother. I am a Catholic and I am proud of it. But you know what? I'm not going to sit there and condemn anybody, nor am I going to shove the Bible down anybody's throat, especially if they're a good person. If they're a good human being, if they're a good human being, that is all God wants for our planet. Do unto others as you would have done to yourself. That's it. That is the golden rule. That is what God wants us to live by. You need to accept that. It's so distressful. Thank you very much for talking. You're welcome. <laughs> well, you have videos on there that says it shows a Catholic hollering and screaming. Oh, that was the guy. <laughs> he was half drunk, and he was angry. He was angry at Catholicism. We know there's a pedophile thing ring. And the, the Catholic Church, it sucks. It's annoying. I'm Catholic. It sucks, too. Well, I'm yeah, about that. that. It's your problem. You go and talk to the Pope. He's your boss. Yeah. Yes. And look what happened. And he's still not doing anything. And he's letting it happen. He's letting it happen. What are you going to do? He's letting it happen. What do you want me to do? <laughs> go Instead of preaching here, like, you know, hey, dude, everything's all good. Tell them, yo, bro, fix me. everything. They won't get me on the balcony. <laughs> the God can make you righteous because he's merciful and because of what Jesus did. Okay. Hey, remember that? But you must believe and trust alone in Jesus. Not your goodness. You don't have me. Trust alone in Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. Well, well what a question. I know, it's a weird question. God blacks or, or white? He's not got a body in my name. like it. Good answer. There's a time when you, and I'm sure you remember this, you interviewed someone who was a witch who practices Wicca, right? And she had like a, a collar on. So, perfect. Okay, have you been born again? I was saved my whole life. I was christened. I've never stopped being a Catholic. All I did was open up my mind to other religions, and I learned that all religions have truth. You said you're a Catholic and that you've been saved all your life. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you're not into the kingdom of heaven. And I must have been born again because then I remembered who I was by God's grace, and I was saved by St. Christopher, so I believe. I'm very repentant, of course, but of course God's issues and commands are different for saints than they are for people. No, the Bible says the Bible. Bible was edited by William Shakespeare. I'm a New Age Christian. I read the agnostic books. I read the Dead Sea Scrolls. I read every book I could. I wanted to know the truth. Can I pray for you? Of course you can. Tell me your name again. Lady Catherine of Aragon. I'm yes, sister. I'm a nun. Okay. Today, may she understand the love that you have for her soul. May she truly repent, be born again, and pass from death to life because of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
edge. She was, look, we don't condone Wicca. Yeah. Let's put that on the table right now. So if, if she practices Wicca, that means she left the church. But she still needed the gospel, and that's what I shared with her. Sure wouldn't hurt. Yeah, sure. Especially someone like that. And you and me. Sure. We're like that, too. Sure. Being eternal life is a free gift of God. Is that what you're saying? I didn't say you free gift of God. I didn't say that. So how do you get to heaven? You have. We believe the same thing you do. You have to recognize no one goes to heaven except through Jesus Christ. You've got to repent and trust in him. Exactly. And that's what I tell Catholics that I meet who aren't trusting They should know that. Now, I'm not saying every Catholic. I bumped into some Catholics that don't know. So he died for our sins. You know that. Right. How can that help you 2,000 years later? You're under God's wrath, heading for hell. How can the suffering death of Jesus help you 2,000 years later? I don't know. You tell me. If you can get a grip of this, Edward, it's going to change everything for you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays them. Even though you're guilty, you see, out here, someone's paid your fine. And it's legal to let you go because someone paid your fine. Well, God can take the death sentence off you. He can legally let you live forever because Jesus paid the fine in full and then rose from the dead. And when are you going to repent and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? Oh, I always did. No. This is a full believer in my religion. Yeah. yeah, I'm not talking about your religion. I'm talking about God's provided a, a way of salvation through trusting alone. My church provides that. Well, it hasn't told you what I've told you today. It left you in the dark. How are you going to be saved? You didn't even know why Jesus died on the cross. Let me put it this way, and I hope this makes sense to you. At the moment, you're like a man on the edge of a plane 10,000 feet up. He knows he has to jump, and his plan is this. He's going to flap his arms and try and save himself. And you and I would say to that guy, don't do that. That's not going to work. Just trust the parachute. And at the moment, you're like that man. You think you're a good person. No, I have a good parachute. I, I have a good parachute. It's called the Catholic Church. It's a very good parachute. Okay, well, I'm saying there's only one parachute, and that's Jesus. Don't he is the way, the truth, and the life. So did you get the analogy? Sure did. Don't, I sure did. Okay, don't try and save yourself by saying I'm a good person. It's not going to work. Just simply transfer your trust from yourself to the Savior. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yes, I do. May I give you a Gospel of John? It's the fourth book of the New Testament. Sure. And can I give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible? Of course. Called Save Yourself of Pain, which is Principles of Christian Growth. Okay. Great to meet you, Edward. All right. Nice meeting you. Don, you've been very patient with me, and I hope you don't think I dislike you because I love you very much, and um, I wish you all the best, and I hope you think about what we talked about. Well, I always think about what I hear you talk about. You read the comments on YouTube? All the time. I'll send a few your way. <laughs> yeah, nice to meet you, man. All right, Ray. Okay. Yeah. You're not as bad as I thought you were. <laughs>
of patience. But in the midst of trouble, in the midst of anxiety, where we're restless and frightened, we are to be still, that is calm and quiet, and to reflect and meditate upon the sweetness of God. Now, all that sort of thing is a wonderful thing, and the Bible enjoins us to do that sort of thing from time to time. It's not the point of that text. The force of the words would be better translated in this language, shut up, or be quiet, hold your mouths, and know that I am the Lord. It is a call to silence, not calmness, silence in the presence of the power of God. You've been listening to Ultimately with R.C. Sproul, a podcast from Ligonier Ministries. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe or leave a review in your favorite podcast app. For more information, visit ultimatelypodcast.com. In 2 Kings 2, after Elijah is taken up by chariots of fire and his protege Elisha succeeds his ministry, we read another popular story only three verses long, but it has stirred up a lot of controversy with some skeptics. Verse 23 begins, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was going, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! Elisha turned, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel and then to Samaria. Okay, so really that's just two verses. But what's the deal? God had two she-bears come out of the woods and maul 42 small boys just for calling Elisha bald? That's pretty ruthless, right? Well, here's the thing. Elisha was going to Bethel, and that city was the focal point of Israel's apostasy. The people had become so hostile against God that even their youth would disrespect one of God's prophets. Elisha wasn't just some preacher, remember. He spoke the very words of the Lord. The reference to bald head isn't really understood, but whatever the meaning, it's clear that Elisha felt threatened to the point that he cursed them and two bears mauled 42 boys. But understand, there weren't just 42 of them. That's only how many the bears nabbed. In fact, there were likely more than 50 running in some kind of pack threatening Elisha. What the writers of Kings truly mean to convey is that contempt toward God's prophets has disastrous consequences. Indeed, even Jesus said that those who won't accept the prophets also won't accept him. And that has the most disastrous consequence of all when we understand the text. Jesus is between 5'11 and about 6'1. I said, more taller than I thought he was. And he put his hand on this shoulder and he looked at he said, go tell my people I'm coming. I stood there, and uh, I was at the Lord's left hand, and it was, this was not a dream. This was as real as life here. And he said, young man. I can feel him. Like, he, it's like he's walking up to me across the room and just tapping me on the shoulder. Kim. And I'm standing with Jesus, and I see God the Father in front of me. There are teachers who will claim to have had a face-to-face conversation with God himself. But it's a lie. How can we know that? For lots of reasons, but in short, because Jesus warned that false teachers would claim such things. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The next appearance of Christ will be seen by the whole world, not a select few in secret. 
Joseph Smith claimed that God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him the church had become an abomination. So Smith started his own church full of destructive heresies. He was a charlatan, and so is every other modern-day false prophet claiming to have had a personal audience with God. We will hear in their teaching many other lies when we understand the text. Sin brought death. This is Ken Ham, author of Divine Dilemma, wrestling with the question of a loving God in a fallen world. Yesterday, we learned about the first of the seven seas of history, creation. God created a perfect world, free from death and suffering. But what happened? Well, that's the next sea, corruption. The first people God made, Adam and Eve, rebelled against him. Instead of trusting and obeying their creator, they wanted to be their own gods. They listened to the voice of the serpent and they sinned against God. The just penalty for sin is death. Their choice to rebel brought death and suffering into creation. They died, and now we all die because of sin. But God didn't leave them to die without hope, and that's for later this week. Discover more about God's plan of redemption when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You thought Tony was a... Terrible immunologist. I identify myself as a Catholic. Greece. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I was married in the church. My children were baptized in the church. Say it with me now. But. But as far as practicing it, it seems almost like a pro forma thing that I don't really need to do. Anyone shocked? Tony doesn't practice his infant inherited faith. And the two reasons he offered, believe it or not, both bad and good. First, the bad. There are enough negative aspects about the organizational church. Now, you might be saying, hold it. It is good that he sees the bad stuff in the Roman Catholic Church, but the bad stuff he sees are actually some of the good things. The Roman Catholic Church, pro-life, at least so far, and pro-marriage. That is what Tony sees as a bad thing. My issues with the Catholic Church are theological. They're a workspace system, which leads us to reason number two. Tony doesn't practice his faith, and this actually reveals, in a sense, Tony's a pretty good Roman Catholic. I think my own personal ethics in life are, I think, enough to keep me going on the right path. Did you hear it? To Tony, religion is all about working, being ethical, being good, and that is in perfect alignment with Roman Catholicism, and that's what separates Catholicism from Protestantism. Catholics believe in faith plus works. Protestants believe salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That produces works. Don't believe me? The Council of Trent, 16th century, it's still on the books, Canon 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, that's a work, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, that's a work. Let him be anathema. That damning sentiment is repeated in the Council of Trent's Canon 12, 
14, 23, 24, 30, and 33. They're earnest about works contributing to salvation, but in case you need to see it to believe it, hopefully this will persuade you that Roman Catholicism is a work-based system. Protestantism is not. And maybe, just maybe, this will help you witness to Tony. You ever bump into him? What's the message of Jesus' life? Um, I like to think that the message of uh, Jesus' life and his teachings were be good to your neighbor, treat your neighbor as you would yourself, um, and love those around you and try and make the world a better place, you know? It's supposed to be the golden rule, like love thy neighbor as thyself. Do you think that that is a good message? I think it's the good message. I would like to suggest to you that that's actually very bad news. Basically, what that law says is you need to love everybody here as much as you possibly can all the time. Oh, that's so exhausting. It would be exhausting. Showing people respect. What's the time for that? The law of love is a commandment. It's a standard. And Jesus said the standard is loving God totally, completely, never wavering, never straying, never sinning, loving everybody the way that you should. I don't. I can't. I can't do that. To the best of our abilities, I think we should try and strive for that. It gets hard, obviously. That means I'd have to love everybody as much as I love me. Yeah, and I love you too, but it's not that hard. Like, I love you, I love you, I love people here, but it's just not that hard of a thing to do. Well, having an attitude that is amicable is not the same as loving and serving somebody. No, I understand that, but basically what I'm trying to say is I understand we have differing opinions. I understand that, but I still respect you. I still love you. Me too. But what I was responding to is your definition of good news was actually a law. The law is not good news. The law for us is very bad news. So let me help you try to find the answer to what this gospel thing means, all right? The laws of God are going to be applied to everybody as the standard by which God will judge the world in righteousness. And he's going to be thorough. He's going to get into the thought life, all right? It's as if, imagine this. The God, that's, we put a little computer chip behind your ear, and we could record every thought that went through your brain for one week, and then we all came back together again next week. We put up a big screen. We put the microchip in, and we got to see your thought life for a week. <laughs> it would make me shudder to think that that would happen to me, and God sees it all. The one who made the eye also sees. The one who made the ear also hears. So every sinful word we've spoken, every hateful act we've ever thought, God will judge it. That's bad news. If God is a judge, and the Bible says he is, he's going to render a verdict on each of our lives. And if I'm a criminal who hasn't obeyed this commandment to love him and to love others the way that I should, wouldn't God judge me as a guilty criminal? We have sacraments. We have uh, we have activities and events that we can go through in order to um, cleanse our souls and in order to better ourselves as human beings. So it's a little bit of a catch-22, but at the same time, we have the ability to reach some of that repentance and reach some of that cleansing because God gives us the ability to go through those sacraments. I know what Roman Catholic Church teaches. You have to do seven different sacraments, and if you haven't done everything right, you go to purgatory where you work it off. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, 
that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, including purgatory, so that nobody can boast. God is going to boast on himself for saving sinners. That is the good news of the gospel. I'm very Catholic, and I, was, I mean, I was totally born, raised in Christian ideals, but I have a friend who's a Sikh, who's one of the most humble people I've ever met, and he's never going to convert to Christianity, but that, does that mean he's going to go to hell? If God truly loves him, and if my friend truly, truly lives in the way that Christians also try to strive for, I don't feel like God would hate him. You just used the law and said that we need to try to be good. I'm here to proclaim I'm bad, and the Bible says we're all bad. Nobody does good. We all fall short of God's standard. You, me, the Sikh, the Muslim, everybody. I am a very wretched, sinful man, and I know the sewer that I was in, and God saw fit to stoop down and rescue me by sending his son to die for me, a sinner. And I just want people to hear There's a way to have your conscience cleansed, your sins forgiven. But there's only one way, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you fail to respond to this good news, it'll be heaping more judgment on yourself because you've had an opportunity to hear a gospel good news of grace. You have to go before a priest, and you have to physically tell him your transgressions, your sins, everything. And he brings upon a blessing on top of you so that in, in instead of Jesus, instead of God, he brings a blessing on top of you so that you may be cleansed of your sin. Yeah. yeah, but then he also, once he tells you that, says, now I want you to go and do these things, right? All right, so what are doing these things? Those are works. Yes. Um, but what about that part that says, not of works, so that nobody can boast, because you use the word activities. Okay, that would be works, doing good deeds, deeds of penance, confession, and taking the sacraments. That's doing something to wipe your slate clean. That's a work, and God says that's a no-go, because then you can get to heaven and go, I'm here because of me. If you're striving to please God with your works, you cannot. Jesus did. Jesus will see that your, your, your sins are forgiven, you're credited with his righteousness, and then when God looks at you, even when you're sinning, he sees you as righteous because he sees you through the work of Jesus. That's grace, and that's the Protestant distinctive, and that's why the Reformation happened. And so if you are feeling a burden of doing, striving, kind of, and maybe God will, I'm here to declare to you, come unto him, and he will give you rest. He will forgive all of your sins past, present, future, and then you'll spend your life so grateful, you'll try to do good things, not with a burden, but with a joy because of what's been done for you, okay? I never said it was a burden. I do it because I want to perpetuate good, because I love I do it because I've been shown love by Jesus. That's why I do it. And I think that's why we're supposed to do it. That's what 1 John is on about. We love because we've been shown love. Not to perpetuate something, not to do something, but because I've been shown so much love, I want to love you and the poor and the hungry and the needy, not because it's a work that I've got to do or to perpetuate good. Wow, God did this for me. I want to do that for them. That is a response to grace. Make sure you understand the difference, okay? Yeah, this is quite a conundrum you put me in. I'm, 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 I must say, I must say. Um, hmm. Do you believe in grace alone? Grace alone. 
No works, just Jesus. Grace alone. Do you believe that? You've got a system that says you got to do a bunch of stuff and maybe you'll go to heaven, but maybe you'll go to purgatory where it can be a little toasty and you have to do stuff to get to heaven. Or you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from the wrath that is to come. There's our, there's our biblical choices. Which, which one does the Bible endorse and say that one is right? Uh, being saved by Jesus Christ, of course. What did the God of the Bible do to save you from the wrath that is to come? What did he do? He sent his son to die on the cross. That's the good news. You don't have to go to a man in a confessional booth. You don't have to pray to Mary. Run to Jesus. He's your one intercessor between God and man. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. No works, no prayers, no beads. Run to Jesus. Grace alone, faith alone, in him alone. You give God your rap sheet, and Jesus gives you his resume, and then you can be set free. You can be forgiven, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did. So my plea again is, will you earnestly do some soul work? Because this is more important than becoming a lawyer. Fair enough? Fair enough. There is an eternal difference between Tony's religion and the Christianity of the Bible. Discuss. Catastrophe and Confusion. This is Ken Hand, encouraging you to visit the Creation Museum in Kentucky with your family. This week, we're looking at the seven seas of history. So far, we've studied creation and corruption. Well, after sin entered the world, mankind became increasingly wicked, so wicked that God judged them with a global flood. Only Noah and his family were saved from this judgment. And after the flood, they were told to be fruitful and spread out over the earth. Noah's descendants instead gathered together in rebellion to build a city and a tower. God again judged sin, confusing their languages, forcing them to spread out over the earth. It's this event that broke up the human population, forming different people groups. But we're all one race, the human race. Walk through the seven seas of history yourself when you visit the Creation Museum in northern Kentucky. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com. You've heard of the 300 Spartans, right? The legendary story of the Battle of Thermopylae when 300 Spartans stood against the entire Persian army. Though actually there were over 7,000 Greeks with the Spartans against over 100,000 Persians, but those were still impossible odds, which is why they all died. Still, the battle remains one of the most famous conflicts in history, with two films about the Spartans, one in 1962 and the other in 2007. Do not watch that movie. Even more amazing than the 300 Spartans were the 300 Israelites. Do you know that story? Centuries before Thermopylae, the 300 Israelites, led by Gideon, went up against an army of Midianites so large you couldn't count their camels. Gideon's 300 defeated 120,000 Midianites and did not lose a single man. They later killed another 15,000 and struck down both of Midian's kings. Yet world history is enamored with 300 Spartans who did not succeed without even a glance at Gideon and his men. What gives? 
Consider the word of God. Gideon started with 32,000 men, but God said, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. He reduced the number to 300 so everyone would know it is God who saves his people and strikes down his enemies. Psalm 10 says the wicked renounce the Lord and do not seek him. All their thoughts are there is no God. So why would the world favor a story about 300 defeated pagans instead of 300 who succeeded by the hand of God? Because they hate God when we understand the text. You will never believe who Pope Francis just compared Jesus to. Today, in Bethlehem, amid the deep shadows covering the land, an undying flame has been lighted. Today, the world's darkness has been overcome by the light of God, which enlightens every man and woman. All those little ones whose childhood has been devastated by war, these are the little Jesuses of today. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that this finds you and your family doing well today. I want to thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I just saw that video clip uh, on the Fox News YouTube channel, and I thought, unbelievable. So I downloaded it and wanted to do this quick little video. You probably noticed I'm doing some rearranging here in my office. But at any rate, I downloaded it. Uh, Pope Francis compared... Jesus to uh, little children whose lives have been uprooted, maybe even destroyed by war. And he says all these little children, they are little Jesuses. So he compares them to Jesus and, of course, vice versa, because comparisons go both ways. Uh, All of us who have a soul, who have a heart, uh, weep when we see children who are uh, abused, who are Uh, molested or even in situations of war where their lives are uprooted or destroyed. Of course, that is heartbreaking. But dear friends, to compare Jesus to anyone, that is just unbelievable. Even for Pope Francis, I think is unbelievable. I've sometimes referred to Pope Francis as the Deepak Chopra of Roman Catholicism. Let us remember that Pope Francis, this is a pope who has said that atheists go to heaven, uh, homosexuals go to heaven, Buddhists, Muslims, Hare Krishnas, you know, as long as you're sincere in your religion, no matter how far outside of Christianity it is, uh, you get to go to heaven too. He uh, recently had a bunch of drag queens and quote-unquote trans women at the Vatican, uh, which there is no such thing as a trans anybody. Uh, You're one or the other. You're either a man or a woman. But uh, he had them in and celebrated them, and uh, just a few days ago, as of this recording, said that uh, priests can bless same-sex unions as long as they're not called marriages. But, um, yeah, two homosexuals living together and doing what, you know, people living together do, you know, a priest can bless that, bless that union, something which the Bible literally calls an abomination and is evidence of the wrath of God uh, listed amongst the sins in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I mean, it's, 
He is the Deepak Chopra of, I used to refer to him as the Joel Osteen of Roman Catholicism. He, he is worse than Joel Osteen. I mean, this guy is a universalist. Uh, he is a socialist universalist and apparently does not even believe in the deity of Christ. And uh, some of you who are Catholics may be watching this video. Oh, yes, he does. Yes, the Pope does. No, he doesn't. Not if, not if you think that, that Jesus is just one of many and all, the, all these little children, they are little Jesuses too. There's only one Jesus. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the wonderful counselor, almighty God, prince of peace. There is only one Jesus. There is only one begotten son of God. His name is Jesus, preexistent from before the foundation of the world, co-eternal with the Father. He himself is the creator, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. He and he alone gave his life as a ransom for many. He is incomparable. He is without equal. And there is no one else to whom you can compare Jesus. You know, Catholics believe that, I mean, this Pope is so far out. He's, he's even too far out for a lot of Catholics, too liberal for a lot of Catholics. Now, think through this with me logically. It is part of Roman Catholic dogma that the popes are chosen infallibly. That, uh, for those of you who aren't Catholic, uh, may not know this. So the way Roman Catholics choose their popes, they have, they have a meeting of the cardinals. And so the cardinals get together when it's time to choose a new pope, and they get together and they, they make their decision, and when they when they reach a decision, then the smoke coming out of the building there is, is white smoke, and so everybody knows, they, okay, they've decided on a new pope. Now, it is Roman Catholic dogma that that, dis, that decision is an infallible decision because the Holy Spirit of God superintends those cardinals as they are making their decision. So their decision is the whatever man they choose to be their pope, he is the one who is chosen by the Holy Spirit himself. And yet we've got this Pope, who is a raging socialist, vehemently anti-capitalistic, and that's the least of his problems. This is a man who, who is who's a universalist. He is a, he is a universalist. I mean, friends, how does that work? If, if the super, if the Holy Spirit of God superintends the decision, how is it that the, the head of the Roman Catholic Church now is this wild-eyed liberal who thinks everybody goes to heaven. How does that work? And, and let me ask this question too. What exactly is the point of even being a Catholic? What's the point of being a Catholic? I mean, if, if the head of your church, chosen by the Holy Spirit himself, if the head of your church believes that atheists go to heaven? What's the point? Buddhists, Muslims, they go to heaven. Homosexuals, everybody goes to heaven. What's the point of even being a Catholic? Unreal. Um, as I close, dear friends, I do not hate Roman Catholics. 
I've said this many times. I don't hate Roman Catholics. I love Roman Catholics, but I love them enough to tell them the truth. I do hate Roman Catholicism because Roman Catholicism is a theological cult. This is a, a it is the largest organized theological cult in the world because it flat out denies the fundamental tenets of biblical Christianity. Uh, in the Council of Trent, it the Roman Catholic Church in the Council of Trent adopted a series of anathemas, and they quite literally um, anathematized the gospel. To sum up, basically, if you believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are anathema. In other words, when you die, you will go to hell. Now, how that works with the Pope's universalism, I'm not quite sure. But at any rate, that remains official Roman Catholic doctrine to this very day. It has never been rescinded. So I hate Roman Catholicism, but I love Roman Catholics and love them enough to tell them the truth. And if you're watching this and you're a Roman Catholic, please hear me. You cannot believe Roman Catholic doctrine and go to heaven because Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic doctrine is antithetical to the gospel. The, the Roman Catholic Church has literally anathematized the gospel. The true gospel is this. You are a sinner, broken God's laws thousands of times. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a blasphemer. You are an adulterate heart at least. How do I know that? Because all of us are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, eternal death. And if you die in your sin, you will very rightly and very justly go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell. There is no purgatory. That place does not exist. There's not a shred of evidence in the Bible that purgatory exists. That is an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. If you die in your sins, you will go to hell. There will be wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. That's what you deserve. That is the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is this, is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He never broke any of God's laws. He was the lamb without blemish. And Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken. He gave it. And on this cross, this perfect person offered his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God. A once-for-all sacrifice never needs to be repeated. Once and for all, read through the book of Hebrews. And Jesus satisfied God's wrath, died on the cross three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. If you will repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and place your trust in Christ, in him alone, he will save you. Priest will not save you. Going to confession will not save you. You cannot have your sins forgiven by going to confession and confessing your sin to some guy in a booth who's just as sinful, if not more so, than you are. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so to all the Catholics watching, if you will turn from your sin, place your trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, him and him alone, lay your works down, they will profit you nothing. They are as filthy rags before a thrice holy God. Trust Christ in him alone.
and he will save you. You will pass from death to life. And then, as a new believer, you will leave the Roman Catholic Church. Thank you very much for watching, dear ones. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all. The last three of the seven seeds. This is Ken Ham, author and speaker on why we can trust God's word from the very first verse. Earlier this week, I said that Christmas is over, but God's eternal plan is not. You see, the penalty for sin is death, and because we've all sinned, we all deserve death. But from the beginning, God promised a saviour. This Messiah finally arrived as a baby, born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. Jesus, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life and then went to the cross and died in our place. His perfect sacrifice paid the price for our sin. Then he rose again. But God's plan isn't finished. Jesus will come again at the consummation, make a new heavens and new earth, free from death, suffering and pain. Discover more about God's eternal plan of redemption when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at TruthBeToldRadio.com. That is... T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com if you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. This is Melissa Cancella. Thanks for listening to Trippy Toller Radio. That's all I got for now. So, bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.